Hello and welcome back to Joe's Art History Podcast, a podcast which celebrates all things art historical with me, your host and your resident art historian, Joe McLaughlin. Welcome back everyone, it is episode 50. That is right, we are the big five zero. Really huge achievement in terms of podcasting and considering I think on average most podcasts kind of bow out at the eight or nine episode mark so to still be standing strong at 50 with so much more to go just have to thank each and every one of you for listening and supporting and for our 50th episode I really couldn't think of a better way to celebrate creativity and art history and yeah doing what you love than by speaking with my wonderful guest this week Sarah McKee. Sarah is an art historian and gallerist and is the founder of a wonderful gallery called Life Full Colour, which is based in a small village called Carnarvon in Wales. Sarah studied art history at university, but like a lot of art historians, the air quotes, get a real job once their degree is over. And Sarah ended up in a long career within the advertising and marketing industry. However, after a series of rather heartbreaking events in the mid-2000s, Sarah decided it was time to return to her first love, art history, and she began living her life full colour. This is a brilliant episode for anyone who is feeling a little lack of inspiration, who feels the need for community and connection, and Sarah speaks beautifully about what her gallery, Life Full Colour, is achieving in just such a short space of time. This is a really special episode, one which upon stopping the recording, I kind of had to walk around for a little bit just to sort of work off the energy. It's a really uplifting one. And I always love meeting people in the art world to shake things up and try and show everybody that art really is for everybody. And Life Full Colour and Sarah and her team at the gallery are certainly doing just that. More importantly, they're building a community where creativity is the crux of what's going on. And it's beautiful. So just sit back and relax as I introduce you to the wonderful Sarah McKee and her gallery, Life Full Colour. Something that I've been thinking about because I'm in the minute of, of looking for a new job. So I've I studied art history, I've worked in an art gallery for the past six and a bit years and I decided to take a little bit of time off and look, still want to work in the art world but like look in a new direction. So I've been thinking a lot about careers in the art world and I want to talk to you about when you studied art history. Did you did you know that was something at school that you could study? Were, were, you, were your tutors I don't know, wise to the fact that that was a subject that you could study. Because for me, I it was a chance conversation. That's how I came across art history was when I was at a university open day and someone gave me the time of day to have a conversation about it. So how did you, how did art history uh, find its way to you? Uh, so uh, random. Um, I went to a private girls' school, an independent girls' school in Manchester. Um, and I was average at, everything to do with maths and science and not too bad at English and that sort of side. Mm. My sister was a straight A, she was three years older than me, straight A's all the way through. So I became captain of hockey instead. Nice. I've got one of those sisters as well. <laughs> she now lives in Paris and speaks about nine languages. Yep. <laughs> well, my sister is um, 
is a primary school teacher um, and does it brilliantly. Uh, but um, I think when we when we were at school, there were, I was always compared and contrasted. So my up to my O levels, it was all a bit grim, if I'm honest. And um, in hindsight, my parents have said that actually they probably should have sent us to two different schools rather than the same one, which is lovely when you're in your 50s. But hey, you know, we are where we are. Um, but I was very fortunate in that in my A-level year, I did um, English and ancient history and literature. And I had two incredibly inspiring women. My English teacher um, had recently got divorced. So that was quite interesting because she changed the name back to her original name. So, um, but she was, she was a theatre goer. She was a massive reader. She was a, um, she was the sort of person that was was probably akin to that Robin Williams teacher character that you know would throw her arms about and get really into the stuff. So when I was doing um, Hamlet for A level, I could recite most of it. Um, so I remember that my 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 exam, my A level exam, I wrote twenty one quotes in an essay on Hamlet, um, and. I was, I'm not brilliant and I don't do that sort of thing, but she was so inspiring that you just got under the skin of the thing and you, you understood it and you wanted to read more of it. And alongside her partner in crime was a lady called Merle Tong, who was about the same age as my parents. Again, a single, single mum, but she looked like something that you'd see characterised now in a Harry Potter movie. Really? Very close cropped black hair, always wore her... It wasn't one of those schools where you, the teachers wore the, the, the gowns all the time, but she kind of did. Right. And she, was, she spoke Latin, Greek, all the classics, and she did this ancient history and literature A-level. And um, she taught me how to write um, because, and she taught me how to think. So they both, I went from O-level, learn by rote, to these two women who basically told me to think for myself and not just take what anybody told me as, as the gospel. And we used to go to the theatre together, um, the, 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 about half a dozen of us taking the A-levels and these two women. And in Manchester, there's the Royal Exchange Theatre. And it's, it's amazing. It's a theatre in the round built in the old Royal Exchange um, uh, kind of market, really. And... Um, you can sit so close, to, you know, the, 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 the guys in the, um, in the place come virtually and sit next to you in between what they're doing. And it's, it's, it's so immersive. And when you're kind of 17 or 18 and you've got these two enthusiasts feeding it you, mm. um, it was just incredible. And um, I had no idea what I was going to do. My parents were completely dysfunctional. They were going through their own problems at the time. So I was getting no kind of advice or guidance. My sister had gone to university in Leeds and read English, so that was fine. She was away. Um, so these two women were seminal, really, in what I was going to do next. And, um, and back, back in the 80s, you, did, you had a careers tutor who you went to see. hadn't, hadn't a Scooby-Doo of what, what was going on anywhere else in the world, really. <laughs> um, and it was those two that said, have you thought about history of art? Because you love... You love going to galleries. You love looking at paintings. You, you read stuff about it. Um, and it was integral to, to both the English stuff. I did take our A-level, but I was rubbish at it. But the, the bit that was really inspiring was um, 
in, in ancient history, um, I was taught to read the classics in the, in the style of reading newspapers. So if you're reading a story from ancient history, um, Herodotus will say something about it, Thucydides will, and so will Socrates. So who do you believe? Mm. So it's a bit like there's the Times version, the Telegraph version, or rather, should we say the, the Times version, the Daily Mail and the Sun, and then make your own mind up by reading all three. So that's why I say I was taught to write and think for myself that way. Um, and then they suggested art history. And then I started to look for courses and I went to various interviews um, back in the day and I, I went to Warwick. Mm. Now, Warwick University, if you've been in recent years, is enormous and well-developed and all the rest of it. It was a building site in the 80s. There was hard, there was the art center was probably the only thing that was was there, um, and then lots of horrible concrete buildings, um, and it was in the middle of nowhere. It was in, in the middle of loads of fields of nothingness on the outskirts of Coventry. So there was nothing appealing about it in terms of location. And we get there, and I'm thinking, oh, I don't want to live in the middle of nowhere. You know, I've, I've been, been brought up going to school in the centre of Manchester here. <laughs> with all these amenities it's too quiet <laughs> but it's <laughs> um and anyway i met this um i was interviewed by uh, a lady who's a uh, an expert in french painting mm. called anthea callum and she lives in australia these days but uh she was she was just really incredible really amazing and um one of the things about the art history course in um warwick was you went to venice for six months or probably a term of three and a half months, but you, you could go either side of it. So I was interviewed by her and I said enough sensible things and my grades were going to look reasonable. And then she said, but why would you choose Warwick? And I said, well, I'd certainly not do it for the location and the look and feel of the place. But I said, to be fair, the opportunity to go to Venice for six months is quite appealing. And she laughed and said, my God, you're the first person that's owned up to that bit. <laughs> so, so that was, uh, I, I didn't get exactly the grades, but I got in. And um, when I got, I got to know Anthea really, really well. And um, she, she's written some of the most really interesting books on how to paint, how the, how the sort of Corbet and that sort of era of, of mm -hmm. the French painters painted. Um, and I wanted to do her course in my third year, you sort of focus on one area. And she decided to have a sabbatical. Oh. So um, she had a summer party and to go to Venice, she had to get to a certain level of Italian. And for some reason, well, in my youth, I'd gone on holiday. So I'd gone on an exchange thing where my father had organized for my sister to go and stay with a French family and she hated it and came home. Being um, awkward, I just said, I don't want to go to France, can I go to Italy? So he found me a family and I stayed over there. So from the ages of about 14, 15, I was going over there with not a word of Italian and people holding things up for me and telling me what they were called, you know, until pigeon wise, yeah. a few years in, and they were lovely people, but they didn't speak any English. So by the time I got to university, I spoke pigeon Italian with a very good Italian accent, apparently. Mm -hmm. um, so they layered on the grammar and the rest of it. So I came top, it had a distinction and, and a knocked out the spots of everybody and all the marks for the Italian just because it kind of flowed a bit yeah and um 
So I, I remember going, she was, Anthea was the next one to my two form teachers in a sense, because she, um, she came running down the path and said, a distinction, stunning. And I said, well, I had to do that because I've got to go to Venice now and go do something Italian, haven't I? Because you're bugging, buggering off. <laughs> um, so I, I suppose from the age of 16, 17, I was treated like a grown up by these people. Yeah. And just encouraged it. And the sort of teaching and that I had at Warwick was very much about don't believe what we say, look, look at it for yourself. Mm. And um, my my prof, Julian, who's retired, long retired now, lives in Oxford. I've been seeing him for lunch on several occasions. He'll he'll email me and say, I'm coming to see my favorite painting in Liverpool. We should do lunch. So I'll drive into Liverpool. Um, and uh, but he's I mean, a clearly erudite scholar knows I'm, I'm, I'm far too commercial, really, to be academic. And I'm too noisy, he always says to me. I can possibly go and work in a gallery or in a museum because I'm too noisy. <laughs> so, uh, and he's quite right, really. But um, the, the, the key thing for me is when you're surrounded by people with that level of enthusiasm, mm. whatever the sphere of um, business you're in, it kind of rubs off. Yeah. And what Julian always said to me was that you can teach people most things, but you can't train people to have an eye. You've kind of got an eye for colour and you, you get it. You can be you can it can be honed a bit like, you know, you can learn to draw, but you're never going to be Michelangelo. Um, even with all the practice in the world. But what I what what I seem to have been able to do is do the colour and the 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 big picture. In, and it's worked in all my commercial world. So I can, I can, I can visualize things. I can visualize what a business looks like. I can visualize a building into a gallery like we've done in Carnarvon. And it's, um, it's not always useful because some people can't work with you because they just don't understand where you are in your head. Um, if you speak to my partner, Rebecca, she'll just say, can we have a bit of a brain download? Because I'm, 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 I'm over here. I kind of know where you're going, but I could just do with catching up. Yeah. Um, so I have got um, in one organisation, one corporate organisation, I was called the Firestarter because I just kept moving, you know, doing another thing, doing another, and, and it it's not always a good thing to do, really. Yeah. But it's those those sort of, you know, my my university was transformational that experience. I, I mean, it really sounds it, and I love that you were encouraged to think for yourself. That's something that didn't happen for me until I was in my 20s and when it did happen it was a revelation question don't take anything as gospel and it really yeah. came when I when I did my master's but I'm interested so I was I've been speaking to uh, your your partner Rebecca and she sent me a little blurb just about about your life and she said after university you you got and she put in air quotes a real job and as an art historian, I find this fascinating because when I, I, I don't know, I don't know if you found this now that you've kind of gone back to it. So when I was at university, I had a lot of people say to me, oh, you're studying art history. What on earth kind of job can you do with that? And now when I'm in rooms with lawyers or scientists or whatever, and I say, oh, I'm an art historian, suddenly I'm the most interesting person in the room. And everybody mm -hmm. thinks what I, what I 
do is incredible. And I find that flip-flop very interesting. And I'm very, at the moment, I've, I'm looking into careers and thinking about next steps, and but also the lack of career advice that was available when um, when I was at university and, and even really now the internet is a, a great thing so I'm wondering what was your career advice when you were at university where did anyone sort of sit you down and say there's so many things that you can do or were you very much you you found yourself very organically heading in a, a slightly different direction when you graduated um no I mean I you know I graduated in 1987 so this is before computers and the internet and um and certainly before anybody thought about careers mm. and when we were all studying like lunatics to get a decent grade at the finish all of our profs were saying why are you getting so hung up about what degree you get you know just you're here to learn you're here to open your mind you're here to do why are you so worried about getting a job and you think actually a lot of what they've done is they've moved from and, and to be fair, we weren't paying fees either, were we? We were paying, we were paying our living standards, but we weren't paying the tuition fees. Mm -hmm. So on a, in a way, you could understand why they were pushing you to just learn and enjoy and immerse rather than worry about the next step. So in terms of the academic staff, forget it, no career uh, thing going there. Prof, however, did get me a, a job role at the um, old master's department at Christie's. Oh, wow. Which would have been fantastic if they paid you anything. Um, so it, it was it was really elitist back then. So you actually had to either have a family who lived in London so you could just carry on living at home rent free and, you know, get your expenses. Um, uh, or you didn't go. And, you know, I live in the northwest of England or my parents did. So that was a non-starter. So um, I actually went to London and stayed in a friend's flat um, Not didn't take the job, but tried to find work so that I could gradually build up to it. Mm -hmm. And partly did that because so many of my friends uh, were from London, and, but they weren't from, so they went home. They didn't go home to the centre of London. They went home to Essex or they went home to, you know, Wimbledon or wherever it was. Mm. So actually, the idea of having this, you'll meet up after work for a drink kind of thing was pathetic. And most people, are, you know, even if we did it once a week, they were all off at eight o'clock and you just think, God, we're only in here. So anyway, long story short, I, I mail shotted myself. My father had been in sales and marketing all his life and mm. suggested actually that why didn't I try advertising, the advertising industry. So they used to have a directory, um, a book, not online. Um, so I mail shotted myself to about 100 advertising and PR agencies in the Northwest and got my first three jobs out of that exercise. The first one was, was a nightmare. <laughs> it, was a, it was in a tiny little village in Lancashire. Um, the upside was there was nowhere to rent, so I bought my first house. Wow. My, my, my pay package was 4,000 a year and I bought this house for 10,450 quid as a repossession. It had no central heating. It was like living as a student again, but it got me on the property ladder. Mm. And 18 months later, I sold it for 30 grand. Wow. So um, a part of the job was a disaster, but that was, um, that was the upside. The, um, I then got jobs in the center of Manchester and um, 
it's it's kind of the alternative creative environment. Um, I was no, I, I I was a copywriter to start with, but actually I'm much better as a trader. <laughs> so very quickly they turned me over to the account management side, and I built up accounts and I won business. And um, and I'm, you know, there was there was a north, well, it probably still is, but there was a huge amount of misogyny then. There were very few women account managers or account directors. Um, women didn't help other women. So there was no there was no business about I'll help you up the next run. No, it's kill or be killed in the whole setup. So um, so to get a promotion, you had to actually move job. Um, so I moved jobs probably every two years um, and got the next next level up um, to the point at which um, in the when was it? it must be in early 90s. I won this client, it was a big computer company and um, they asked me to go and be marketing director. So I flipped to the other side, flipped to the dark side and um, did loads of commercial stuff. And, and ever since then, um, I've done uh, commercial vision strategy, that sort of thing for all the different businesses I went into. I've done lots of startups, did a startup, low fare airline. Um, opened retail stores for this computer one. Um, I've worked in, in uh, consumer electronics. I've worked in um, welfare to work, policy, um, housing and social care. So I've done all sorts of different things, but my job's always been transformation. What, what, do we, what does it look like in the next five or 10 years? And people can't do that. People find vision strategy really tough they're always in the weeds they can't look up and and out mm. um so so the thing i learned quite late actually was you actually have to delegate an awful lot because somebody needs to be looking five years out so that's what i'm good at what i'm not good at is planning the day-to-day -day program of what we're doing on tuesday and have we got enough um you know sugar cubes and all the rest of it so i need people who are really good at that and and manage that really well and and love that level of detail so um and rebecca god love her she's a trained journalist that's her degree um, she's worked in pr but she's always been a campaigning pr person right and um she's worked with me in a lot of my corporate jobs um and we just i don't know she is the polar opposite to me she is the person that keeps the wheels down and um doesn't stop me doing anything. She'd say on, in this call that she'd be riding on my coattails for the last 15, 20 years. But actually, um, she's the one that's probably stopped me doing anything completely ridiculous. Mm. Um, and, you know, I kind of, she hates me going on holiday for more than a few days because I get bored and then I start thinking of the next thing. So um, I find that I find your career history incredible because in the back of everything, the love of art was still there. It didn't. You know, and, and you, you do need this, I think, in order to, to think five years in advance or five steps in advance. And I think that's something I'm quite good at, I, particularly when I'm installing something or a situation happens. Mm. I can think six steps in advance. And when someone says, let's do this, I'll say, no, we can't do that because X, Y, Z, we have to do this first. Yeah. And I think that's very much a creative mind. But you still had this this love of, of art and you traveled the world and and yeah. still visited galleries and, and saw all these things yeah I mean uh, 
so I've worked in Israel for a few years um oh. off and on you know going back every you know six weeks for a week um and that's a completely different culture again and some of the museums they're phenomenal and once in your life you need to go and do the Holocaust Museum it takes about four hours to go around it and it's absolute I mean I remember my husband saying um that they should have a bar at the end of it that served free uh whiskey tops and brandy because it's so exhausting and um amazing but um I love different arts and cultures and food and uh, just like being taken to things by people who I work with over there um and and that was great and um, go to New York to my friends over there um all through my corporate life um there was always that people have different interests and once you get to know people a bit better you find out what some of them are very spiritual so my friend Tammy is doing a whole load of spiritual stuff these days um, another friend, Bill, who I've worked with for years, his wife is an artist and they live up in Ithaca in, in uh, New York State and their friends are all creative. You know, Helena Cooper, you may have heard of, she does uh, nature photography painting. Her husband's a poet. Um, so you surround yourself and they all play music. I can't play music, but, you know, I always said to Rebecca, that when you see me with a banjo, just shoot me. But... Um, <laughs> But, um, you know, they're all, they're all really creative people and we rub off against each other. And, um, you know, we do business to, to earn a living, um, but it's, all, it's always been surrounded by that type of creativity that, that you know, you, makes your heart sing, really. You know? Yeah, um, I, I find, um, I, I know a lot of people, particularly the people I studied with, that had got their degree in art history or studied their my their masters with me in art business which is, is from reading sounds a little similar to what you did and I think the person that ran your course at Christie's founded my course at Kingston oh, right. so we'll, we'll come on to that but I find there's a guilt that runs through people that they feel if they've stepped away from it to, to earn a living elsewhere mm -hmm. and um, I just wonder do you have any advice for anybody that feels that that, that has that guilt that's listening that perhaps I'm thinking of two or three people in particular that when I speak with them, they feel so sad that they haven't been able to to pursue a career in there and they've, and they've ended up going in a different direction. But the love is still there. Well, I think I think for me, it's um, I mean, I want I've always wanted to write a book, but I haven't got the discipline. I know I have to sit mm -hmm. down and write a bloody book and I won't do it because I'll be doing all sorts of other things. So maybe when I hit 70, I might write the book. But um, the passion doesn't go, you know, that wherever, wherever we used to go on holiday, you know, we bring back art, whether it's a pot, a, a painting, we've been to see whatever is available while we're there. We'll be sunbathing, we'll be having great food, we'll be doing whatever, but there's always been an art element to what we did. And we always plan, I mean, we were planning stuff um, right up at, until, you know, my husband died it, we were we were still we were off to go and see a canova um you know we were doing all the all the v's in northern italy you know <laughs> um but i think uh you've got to be quite pragmatic about earning a living mm. but it doesn't mean to say that you've been your creativity i've used i've used um coloring in and mind mapping and um everything i mean i have a finance guy who is too 
days uh, apart from me and birthdays. We are very, very similar in so many ways, but he's an accountant. Yeah. That's what he does. He's, he he's drills his brain left every day. And, but his first in any meeting, it was always a race to see who would pick up the marker pen first and start drawing things on the flip chart because we both thought in the visual. Mm. Um, and that can, you, you can use your visual and your art history on all that anecdotal stuff. So all the classics I did at school were brilliant to go into all of that Renaissance art that you do in art history and understanding, you know, uh, if, you, if you went to Sunday school as a child, then even those Bible stories come in handy in art history, don't they? So, you know, I'll joke to the vicar this morning that the only reason I know anything about symbolism in, in, in um, the scriptures is because of art history. It's not because I've been to church often enough. True. Um, and I picked, I actually picked one of my subjects in first year was biblical studies. Yeah. It's not because I'm <clears throat> devoutly Catholic, even though I went to a Catholic school, it was because I was like, if, if I know these stories inside out, it's going to help me yeah. in my art history degree. And it really, really has. Absolutely. But, uh, but you see, I've always thought you can take part, part of having a degree for me, and certainly what was hammered into me by our lecturers and professors was it just opening your mind to think differently. Yeah. And when I first started out, there weren't that many people who'd been to university and there weren't that many women who'd been to the, still, you know, in the 80s. It was still quite elitist to go to university. It was only top 5% that were going, as it was said. So you, it was a point of difference and it was enabling me to get those jobs a bit because I had an extra qualification on my CV. And after the, what, what people don't understand is art history was often seen as, a, you know, it's the thing that the royals do, isn't it? Because it's yeah. you know, clever to do it, really. It's just, the media studies of earlier days and actually it's bloody complicated and you have to learn different languages and you know you have to know more about chemistry than I did it as an O-level mm. um so I have an all-rounded skill brain now because of our history so it's not that I couldn't do it in the way that I'm currently doing it I am fulfilling a lifetime dream to be able to do my own thing and be surrounded by pictures and I'm very narrow-minded on what I like and what's going in my gallery. And I can do that because I'm now 55 and I own the bloody building. Yeah. Um, but I've never not had things on the wall, art surrounding me, art as part of what my days off were. And the beauty of my last corporate job, I was around the corner from the National Gallery. Oh. So where do you think I had my lunch breaks? Amazing. Amazing. So, you know, if you if you can get into London, I mean, and I didn't live there, but I was there two or three days a week, probably. Then I would go to the theatre, you know, my one of my colleagues and I, if we were staying over, we'd see are there any last minute tickets anywhere. We go to the theatre or we'd, you know, I did loads of policy stuff with Westminster as well, which is much drier. But, um, you know, any any half hour break I could have if I was walking back from somewhere, I'd just nip into a gallery. Um, so you don't need to have it as an either or um, yeah. and the inspiration and don't stop reading either mm. um, you know I bought this uh, book a few months ago David uh, Hockney on the secret knowledge which was all about how you um, you can go abstract if you like you can do all the creative and foreign stuff now but not unless you've learned how to do all the basics and learn properly how to draw you know how they used to do in the Slade back in the turn of the century you know, you go and draw um, bits of sculpture for the first two years till you've ma mastered the form of body. 
yeah um all that stuff you need to do I mean I still read masses of stuff I read lots of fiction but I still read about subject matter I'm currently um very enamored with Georgia O'Keeffe I wanted to go to the exhibition in Paris but I'll never get there in time no do you not think so when is it on till the end of the year no yeah well it's it's on till I think it's like the 6th of January but you know if I live where you were, I'd be on and off the uh, Eurostar. Yeah. yeah. Um, I went with my niece a couple of years ago to the um, Picasso, Rosé Bleu. Um, we went on the Eurostar then. Oh, it right. Musée d'Orsay. It was like the last three days of it. Um, oh, really? Oh, so I managed to snuck in. Um, but uh, I'll never get it done this year. Uh, but um, my, my other uh, business partner... Um, Joanne, who organises all my um, dull but very important stuff, um, she uh, when I I said oh, I'll never get to this exhibition, she pinged me a note to say there's another Georgia O'Keeffe one in Basel later in the year. You can go to that. Yeah, oh, well, so that's, that's, fair that's I've never been there. Yeah, I think that's the nice thing about these blockbuster shows, though. When everyone's like, oh, I have to get to them, they're such a big ticket name. Yeah. There's a great, it's going to be the last one ever, like which is what I was going to say to you. There'll probably be another one because there was one, I think, two or three years ago at the Tate, yeah. which the first time actually I came across O'Keefe. And one of my one of my last episodes in season one was on O'Keefe. Um, and she, an amazing artist, amazing. Yeah. Let's sort of fast forward to 2011 because your your life very much sort of flipped on its head. Um, yeah. and you've mentioned it briefly so your your husband Stephen sadly passed away yeah. and you were made redundant from from your position at work a few months yeah. later that, that's a lot for for anybody but you from what Rebecca has has written and what she sent me you had this really really great sort of oh okay great well I'll I'll go back to my first love of art history and you looked at at returning to the art world so can you tell us a little bit about what, what you did yeah so I was I was in a very big corporate job which you know in hindsight I think I did quite well actually because I made them loads of money but um I, I didn't really fit mm. um and then Stephen died in the February 2011 um and uh he, he, I don't know whether Rebecca had mentioned he was he was a, he had a brain the size of a planet he was a doctor of chemical engineering he was so clever you know he, he, it zinged he was an academic um, he worked for AstraZeneca for a while um, but his brain was in, in overload all the time and eventually it took his life well he took his own life in fairness so that happened in the February 2011 and then almost to the day a year later having done all, I ran around like a lunatic for a year in the corporate world. Um, my best friend, the finance director, David, used to say to me, have you slept tonight? No, I didn't sleep at all for that first year. I lost gallons of weight um, and I kind of had my head down motoring. I then took a week off on the anniversary of his death and I had a call from my boss and I thought, oh, nice. And um, I kind of phoned, phoned, phoned a friend, as you do, to say, have I misinterpreted this conversation in a yeah. way? And it was like, no, you haven't. Right, OK. So it, that all ended rather badly. Um, but it did, because she'd done it in such a bad way, and um, they had to pay me a lot of money to go away. So that was when um, 
uh, it was actually my brother-in-law who said to me, instead of rushing at it again, because the thing in corporate world is people phone you up and say, would you like a job here instead? And yeah. I thought, oh, I don't want to do this anymore. So in a way, she did me a favour because it did the break. Yeah. Um, and uh, my brother-in-law said, isn't there something you could do that relates back to what you've always wanted to do? So I looked up, Christ I looked up the Christie's Art Business course with James and, um, and I thought, actually, do you know what would be quite nice? Even though I live in Cheshire and catch the train down, it finishes at eight o'clock at night. So I can either stay over with somebody I know and have dinner mm -hmm. or just catch the later train home afterwards. So it meant I still had a rhythm of a week where I could I'd go and do what I used to do, which was lots of travel, but just like less travel. Um, so I invested in that and in myself and um, I was the oldest, apart from James, I was the oldest person in the room all the time because everybody else was like sort of your age or younger yeah. doing a master's and an extra and a what have you. And um, but it was really interesting. It was such an interesting thing. And I just wanted to ask questions. I wanted to absorb. I wanted to understand. I bought all the books. Yeah. Um, and uh, it, yeah, I think it was it was a sort of the bit I'd never done. And because I've spent 30 odd years in the commercial environment where my job has been the commercial bit and understanding how things work and how much it costs and how we make money. Yeah. I'm probably in a better place now to be able to make something like this work commercially. Yeah, absolutely. Because you kind of have to know what generates the cash and be able to change direction. You know, you won't something in the middle of a pandemic. You can't just stay with the original business plan. <laughs> Yeah, there needs to be a, a degree of flexibility there but I I felt exactly the same and, and when I so I had a look at your course and it was near enough exactly what, what I did at Kingston University so my course was called Art yeah. Market Appraisal Professional Practice which has got to be the longest title of a master's <laughs> anyway they've, they've changed the title since then but again it was it sounds very similar to what you did looked at the history of the art market why the art market ticks the way that it does yeah. now and it's something yeah. that we didn't touch on when I studied art history at Glasgow no, University. No, we didn't and it just lit this fire under me that I was I mean I was like oh there's it's all about branding and it's all about marketing and it's all about buying the name and because that's that's really when you think about it and um, I've worked in in an independent art gallery in London and it, people do come in and say okay so I've got a moor I've got a Hepworth I'm looking for a Lynn Chadwick now and it's it's amazing how for some people as a ticky box exercise and learning about the people that cottoned onto that really, really early and made it work for them and shaped a very, very fascinating career. So anything to do with the history of the art market or how the art market ticks completely fascinates me. But was it from doing this course that you, was this where the idea of finding the gallery came from? Did you come out, did you have a, 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 a sort of aha moment, if you will? No, no, um, no, not at all, actually. I, I, it was probably, um, I was still very much steeped in the thing I did before, and I'm very passionate, as is Rebecca, about um, the deinstitutionalization of care home world. So um, I did a very um, quite feisty interview with The Guardian when I left my job, uh, which the, um, the writer, David Brindle, who is a brilliant social affairs editor <laughs> basically wrote the headline was no one wants to live in a care home which is quite interesting when you just left all of that yeah and 
and um, we 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 still work to try and change the attitude of people so that once you get older you don't need to be warehoused mm. um, and they shouldn't be building ever bigger warehomes as we call yeah. them um, for older people you don't stuff your granny in a warehouse when she's too difficult to look after um, but there's so many people lacking in both the NHS. There's 120,000 vacancies in social care. Uh, and it isn't about paying them another pound an hour. It's about making it a fulfilling career. And nobody's doing that. So Rebecca and I do quite a lot of that still. Um, but mainly working with local authorities in the NHS to change culture mm. um, and get people thinking that, you know, as I often do when I do these sorts of talks in conference terms, it's all about me. I'm 55. I'm now eligible for social housing. I'm now eligible for the stuff that is retirement. And I've just opened another business. So, you know, think about me and what I will want. And when I do need some extra support, it won't be being given a room where if I want to entertain anybody, they have to sit on the edge of my bed like they did when I was a teenager. Mm. So think of me as a consumer, not as that old person. Yeah. Um, and so, so that's quite a lot of what we did. So we've got a business called Evermore that we were, we still, we still operate through, but it's about people and vision and doing things. So, so it all inter, inter, interweaves really. But that was really the priority. It was, I, I kind of, um, I kind of couldn't shed the full corporateness straight away. And I hadn't really articulated in my own mind um, what could I do? Because I was too old to go and start working in another gallery or a big organisation like the Christie's and the Phillips of the world. So, um, so use my creativity in, in our existing frame. And it was probably not until about 2017, 2018, I said to Rebecca, can I have a website? Can I just have, because we were talking about, you know, how drab and boring and dreadful all of these places yeah. were. And um, we, we have this thing about, you know, when I get old, I don't, I don't want to wear beige and crimpling. I want to live life in full yeah. colour. So that's what we've talked about for the last eight years. And I said, uh, can I just have a website where I write about the expeditions I've been to and, and do book reviews and stuff like that? Just pander to my ego. And she goes, go on then. So she created Life Full Colour as a website. And uh, she knows how to do all that clever stuff. Um, so I'd write things and I'd do... You know the Bridget Riley um, review at the Haywood Gallery and all that sort of stuff. So whenever I went anywhere, I'd say what I thought. So not necessarily art historically accurate, but this is what I got out of the exhibition. Um, and we did book reviews and various other bits. And then I went on holiday and I thought, well, we could make an online gallery or and so I, this is where Rebecca says, you know, this is terrible because you go on holiday for two or three days, you sleep for the first two or three days, and then you wake up on day four and you're bored and you have an idea and there's only you and the yeah, dog. Yeah, you've got the flip chart out. <laughs> so there I am, I'm on right move. And, I'm, and, and before I've even had a conversation about where I'm thinking, I think this looks like a really good place to open a gallery, doesn't it? Oh my. So um, yeah, so probably May, 2019, I'm, I'm telling her this is what I think we should do mm. next. I'm saying, and she's like, well, how, how can we afford that? And I went, well, I'm thinking, you know, the way I've done my pension, the pension can buy the building, you know. Blah, blah, blah. So commercial head goes into overdrive. So I'm emailing my uh, finance person and I'm doing this, that and the other. So um, 
And by the time I get back from my little holiday, which was in Dumfries and Galloway, I'm going around to various parts of North Wales looking at different amazing. locations. That's just amazing. So I'm just an impulsive, if I'm going to do it, I'll do it now. Um, I, found, I had a couple of goes at things that didn't quite work for a variety of reasons when you get under it, too big, wrong shape, wrong location. And then I tipped up in Carnarvon, which is, you know, I really ought to speak fluent Welsh to be there. But they have been so welcoming because this mad woman turned up, bought this redundant restaurant, painted it yellow and turned it into a gallery. Mm. And we're attached to the castle walls. And, um, you know, it's just a joy, really, because you just hang out, hang out, surrounded by mm. art. I decide, I, it's up to me what goes on the walls. I have to like you as, an, as a person and I have to love your work. Yeah. And... You know, some people are much, you know, much more in in the vibe than others. But actually, I all the people I have artwork for, I really like. I can hang out with. I can chat to, talk about what we think we should be doing. Um, they have ideas. I have ideas. Um, and it beca it's become a little tribe, like other places I've operated. It's a little tribe. We all love each other. We want to do the best for the whole. It's not just about, you know, who's who's bigger or more important or more impressive um and out of which I've gone from finding two or three artists to start yeah. with to I've got we've got an entire program for next year so I can legitimately say to anybody who comes in how do I get in your gallery well you, you have to I have to start to get to know you but clearly you won't be in before 2023 because we've a full program yeah. and even now I'm I've got other things that wouldn't fit in next year that I want to do the year yeah. after and I want to be in America and I want to go to Australia to where Rebecca is. Um, you know, we've done the Manchester Art Fair. We're doing that again. Um, we're doing our little thing on the 1st of March for St. David's Day in London. But talking to you about representation of the, the Celts in London, yeah. then we need to do something about that. Yeah, no, absolutely. Because there's, I I think I said this to you when we when we spoke on the phone a few weeks ago like I really if ever walk into a space and go oh there's oh there's a Scottish artist or oh, there's a Welsh oh there's an Irish artist it's it's very very heavily dominated but again same thing applies if I go up to Scotland it's mostly Scottish artists and funny I went for um a com I went for a coffee with this group of people called Artichoke and they run um programs throughout the UK and they're trying to do this one where they're working with um Irish, Scots, English and Welsh artists and sort of yeah. integrate and yeah just introduce different uh, different nationality of artists in these different regions yeah. and they, they were talking oh what do you think there'll be a kickback from it do you think we should only show Scottish people in Scotland and I was like well no because your nationality shouldn't play into how you're received really or maybe that's a question that you ask people when you walk into an exhibition space what do you think the nationality of this artist is you won't be able to tell because why should it be important why is it the, why is that the question but there's a, such a lack of representation in spaces where you feel welcome particularly yeah. in England well, I think it's I think a lot of it is what are galleries for what are they doing mm. how are you promoting what you do because we, we, my job is very simple to foster um, and grow the artists that we have. 
So it's not about somebody coming in and saying, I'd like to buy another Bridget Riley to go with my collection, because clearly I'm not going to have Bridget Riley in my, uh, my stable, but I've got some really brilliant mm. artists. And a lot of them haven't been able to make a living out of it full time. And many of them are now moving towards that because of what we've done in the last year. And that for me is really powerful. That's what I've been for, that I've been able to move their prices up almost by 100% in the last year. And they are growing a collector base. So we are getting people coming back and saying, I would like to see what Nathan's doing at the yeah. moment. So he's gone from a 450 canvas to an average of 11, 1200 canvas. Mm -hmm. And he's, he's, he's doing, when I first met him, he didn't do anything very large. And I said, I think we should do something enormous for the opening. And we priced it at two grand and we both looked at it and went, <laughs> but never mind, we'll do yeah. it anyway. Somebody fell in love with it. They bought it. We took it to their house. They live in the tiniest maisonette flat. <laughs> Dominates their living room. And it's a bloody great puffin called the Commander. Love it. But out of her window on this maisonette, she has a tiny little balcony and she can see Puffin Island. So it all works. It all works. Mm. So I think never underestimate the people walking through the door. Um, and it's all about accessibility. We, we've, we've built a relationship with people coming through our door who feel, some of them feel it's quite spiritual and calming and relaxed. Um, and some of them actually just feel it's just so informal and they don't feel pressurized and they don't think they have to whisper and they, you know, some old people say, oh, I could have done that. You know, that's not very good. It's like, yeah, but you didn't, yeah. did you? You didn't you didn't you could have put it in the open show it could be on the wall but you didn't somebody yeah. else did so um but we have those we have that conversation we have that dialogue um and that that's the bit that's kept me sane in all these restrictions the fact that i know i can go to a place and mask or no mask be in conversation with someone yeah. and and i'm talking about stuff i love so you go back to your the people who feel guilty about not doing their degree subject in their adult life, you'll get there. If it really is your passion, you'll get there. You'll, you'll find ways to inch it into the life you have now and you will develop your network of the future. So the first people who bought the artwork off us last year and for the open show were all the people that we knew in health and social care mm. in the NHS. Because I've always said, Tell everybody everything you're doing. Tell everybody. So I was sitting in a council office whilst negotiating with a, um, a lawyer over the, uh, the deal to buy the gallery. So everybody in the bloody room knew I was buying a building to open a gallery. Loads of people have been who are not interested in art in particular. Going, this is nice. Amazing. This feels very good. It does help that we're next door to a deli in fairness who make <laughs> fabulous coffee and cake. Um, <laughs> and what have you in terms of community and because you're in quite a quite a small little town are you not have you yeah Carnarvon, Carnarvon is um is probably 80 percent uh first language Welsh mm -hmm. and um which could be a real challenge I have hired a lady who uh, Lauren who works for me who is um first language okay. Welsh and she um she laughs at my pronunciation when I give it a go <laughs> My goal for 2022 is to, I was doing quite well before lockdown, but um, I, I learned, like my Italian, I learned by talking yeah. and 
pigeoning it and getting away with it. I don't want to write an essay in Welsh, frankly. I just want to be able to charad, which is chat with people. Charad Kimraig is my, um, my goal for next year. But um, we're surrounded by food. So um, if you like food, it's great. And so every time we have a, a, an opening or a preview or anything that I can justify having food and drink at, I work with my neighbours, either the deli or the restaurant at the end of the street. They're all independent businesses around us. The lady who does flowers done the wreath for the door. She's got a little florist at the end of the street. She, um, she does the usual weddings and funerals as a core business, but she's, um, they're all friends. Yes. The dogs are friends with each other. You know, there's a lady who runs this sort of vintage paraphernalia type, all sorts of stuff that she buys at auctions and car boots and you name it. But you get to know these people. Manon um, was one of this one of the, one of the stars on the equivalents of Coronation Street in Welsh for seventeen. Really? Exactly. So of course I've never seen her on TV, but you know you can see she's she's bubbling with personality. So, but all these fabulous personalities around who have been so welcoming and so kind and and uh, you know, Mariana at the florist, I'll say, how'd you say that again? <laughs> she just said. Just say tipping back and that will be nice to you. <laughs> but, but it is, it's, it's kind of a community within a community because we're all within the town walls or of the castle. And within that, it's all independent businesses. So we all have to survive by working together to make the streets lively and vibrant and, you know, pushing people towards other people. And you just get to know people by being around. And because I've got the, the young puppy dog, Percy, uh, we, we, we often, we're often out in between calls and things, um, having a quick walk uh, around the town. So everybody, everybody knows Percy, clearly. And um, I just like, I, I love chatting to people. It's, it's something, and my, my family come from a, a long line of market traders or artists. And so um, inevitably I'm the market trading side. I'm not creative enough to be the artist, but it's, it's, the, it's people. If you, if you don't love people, you shouldn't do our job. Yeah. Um, and you've also got to bear in mind that not, you're not going to agree with everybody and it doesn't matter. Well, that's it. And that's something I think comes the longer that you work with people as well. I think sometimes, particularly when I was younger and I used to do like waitressing and things like that, and people would just tell you your whole life story and which is which I love I love that I love I think people are so interested they're so multifaceted I never think you yeah. should pigeonhole yourself there's I think this is why when when I read Rebecca's email I was like this is a, you're exactly the type of person that I want on the podcast because you don't pigeonhole yourself and you haven't decided oh, okay well that's the hand I've been dealt and that I can't do anything about it you work with it and you can move off and you want to leave an impact which I love um but I think particularly in the art world uh, people buy from people community is oh, so yeah. important and yeah. most importantly I think the people that have, have run the art world previously they are a community but they're an elitist community and they don't let people in whereas you and I are, are both northern so there's a there's a way where we love chatting to people there's that you want everyone well, we're the mad people. We're the mad people on the tube that smile and talk 100%. to you. Hundred percent. Oh my gosh! Do you know, um, I always say to people, 
I think actually being Scottish is a bit of a superpower and I never I never really understood it until I lived in England and I was I was brought up in a house my mum's a primary school teacher and she was one of these women that she would stand in the queue at Tesco and she would be three people away from the, the cashier and she'd start a conversation with the cashier and then the conversation would sort of kick back and then the whole queue would be chatting and then the cashier next to us would start. And then before we know it, we would have a mass conversation between three checkouts. And I used to be like, why do you do this? But it's a skill. It's an, it's an absolute skill to get people chatting, um, which I think is so important when you work in the art world because it's all about sharing opinions and what you think about things. And it isn't like I always say to people, you know, it doesn't matter if you like a painting because it's blue or you don't like it because it's blue. It's still a valid opinion. Let's have a, there's mm -hmm. nothing wrong. There's nothing yeah. wrong with that. Like have a conversation about it and yeah. feel you are welcome in these spaces. But I think ultimately what I'm trying to come round to is these spaces need to be more welcoming, be less sort of doorless. Well, I think it's always been about, it's got to be accessible. You've got to want to be here. You've got to want to chat. If you don't want to chat, you can just wander around and leave. That's fine too. But most people want to hang out for a bit. And, um, you know, I'm I'm like, I always say to Lauren, I'm like your worst nightmare parent at a disco, aren't you? I go out and go, don't look through the window. Come on in, it's warmer. <laughs> it's like, oh, no, she's doing that again. Wouldn't she stop doing that? But um, she got used to me now after a year. But it's, it is that... Um, uh, a lot of this as well is the artists spend so much time on their own that their ability to come and hang out together. You know, I get Jocelyn and Nathan upstairs in their studio mucking about and um, talking about paint and how you get that look and how to do that bit and how to do that bit. The two of them have never worked so hard as they did at the show at Manchester Art Fair. Yeah. And when you bear in mind, when I first met Nathan nearly two years ago, he was so anxious, he had a stammer. He could barely string a sentence together. Now he's um, up in his studio on our top floor, um, painting away, chatting to people as they come in. He's our artist in residence. When we opened, I said to him, somebody here who's um, bought something off your Facebook, desperate to meet you. And he went, oh, I can't see them. I can't see them. I won't know what to say. So just stand next to me. I won't yeah. be. And he literally just said, hi, nice to see you. And then ran off. Um, Manchester Art Fair, I was talking to people and saying, of course, Nathan here has painted all of these wonderful seascapes over here and Jocelyn here has done all this interesting stuff around Manchester's Northern Court. So I'll leave you all to talk to, are you the artist? Oh, this is so amazing. Um, and, you know, it obviously it's good for their ego, but it's also um, just makes them feel valued in a way that they probably didn't. They, I can't tell you how many of them don't know how to price anything and they don't know what their value is and they... You know, and we come away from Manchester and they go, can we do it again? <laughs> okay, not just this week, but yes. <laughs> I need a breather. My feet are not speaking to me. But yeah, so so that for me is, if I can if I can get a group, I've always loved a little tribe yeah. and I've tried to create that wherever I've worked. Um, and I've got lots of friends who might have been clients actually, but people who within my widest network our followers for, of us now. And, you know, my, I, I've got sort of different parts of the countryside who will come to different things. And people who have made a little pilgrimage when they were vaguely in the area on holiday to come and see my little gallery. And it's just wonderful. Yeah, well, I want to come see, I want to come see you at the, in the 
Well, you're very welcome. You're very, very welcome. I would love to come see it. And it sounds such a, a lovely community. And like you said, yeah. I love this idea of a tribe and that you all work together as independent yeah. owners and businesses to sort of ping pong business and direct people between each other. I think that's really important and kind of comes full circle to what you were saying earlier about what you didn't like about the corporate world. It's kill or be killed. And oh, I mean, the art world can seem like that at times. And, and, and that's something I, I don't think it needs to be. No, and I think um, it's funny, actually, in certain circumstances, I do go back to my alpha female position. But uh, as, as Rebecca would say, um, I was very alpha female when she first met me. Mm. I have softened considerably, I believe. Um, but it was I worked in those retail, retail property um, business environments where I invariably was the only woman on the board. And I mean, I used to go to uh, budget meetings at the end of March and I'd go, it's my birthday this week. I intend to win, win big. I will be taking no prisoners. Now, I wouldn't even think of saying that now. <laughs> but, um, but I think it's uh, I, I do like working with men. I really do. And I, what, one of the things I find frustrating with some women is we have a terrible habit of wanting to have perfected something before we start. <laughs> thinking it all through, polishing it beautifully, and everyone else has left the room and, and carried on. Men will say yes to a job when they've got about 30% understanding of what it is. We want to be 85%, 90% sure. Now, I'm more of a 70%. I'd like to be about 70% of how this is all going to work and then start, mm -hmm. because it won't be perfect and things will go wrong and you'll have to change. Yeah. I think experience helps you do that. But what I'd like to give to other women in business is that understanding that you don't have to be brilliant and you don't have to be better than all the men in the room anymore. You just have to have a little bit more guts. Yes. Um, and I, I was at a lunch last week, and this made me laugh, you know, I'm in, a, I'm in a frock, I've got pink hair, and I'm just delivering paintings to one of, one of the guests at the lunch. Sit next to this guy, we're halfway through, we're getting to the end of the main course. And he says to me, and it's a northern environment, so, you know, He's not PC on any level. Nice guy. But he just says to me, you see, you're not really a girly girl, are you? You're, you're definitely a business businessman that goes toe to toe. And I went, yeah, yeah. I said, I did have in the 90s a Dutch boss who said to me that I was like a bloke in a skirt. And I've always taken that as a compliment because, you know, that's that's about saying you're one of yeah. us. Um, and at the time, there were no HR departments. I couldn't complain to anybody if I didn't like that. You know, you go with the culture you're in at the yeah. time. And that I have learned over many years, the culture I kind of want to foster. Yeah. I want a, a culture where we're all doing it. We're all in it together. We're working really hard. We're not clock watching, but there's a load of fun involved. And I think life full colour sounds, sounds like that. It really does. I th well, I think... I think we are definitely aiming to be like that. We want to be totally inclusive. Um, I mean, Rebecca, God love her, allows me to talk about Stephen, you know, 10 years after he has, has left, left the, the place. Um, and to the extent that she's always felt that um, he still has an influence on, on my thinking. I often go and do the, what would you do? And uh, he always used to say to other people, she could run the nation, you know, she could be bothered. Um, but, and it's, it's, 
is the one and only person that's had absolutely unconditional confidence in my abilities, um, which is great. And I try and retain that. Um, but when we opened this art space, she, she said, we need, we need, it needs to be, this is the time to remember Stephen. So she, she came up with the doctor's art house because yeah. Dr. McKee and the dual aspect that he was a huge Doctor Who fan. So uh, the, the logo actually has a little sonic screwdriver. Oh, I love it. that. I love that. So can you tell the listeners what the, the Doctor's art house is about? and What does it offer the community? So it's all part of the Life Full Colour stable. Mm -hmm. uh, but what we found is Life Full Colour over the last year has become so much of a, a painting and art, fine art sort of venue that people want to come and see and, and buy art that we haven't got the space to do um, workshops, classes. And, and everybody all the time has been saying, are you going to do drawing classes? Are you going to do painting classes? Will you be doing ceramics? Will you be doing such and such? So I just have this long list all the time of what everybody tells me. And um, uh, Gwyneth Council have been investing in culture and the arts over a long period now, and they've just um, opened this whole new venue down by the harbourside in Carnarvon. So it's right next to the castle in the old Harbour Masters Slate buildings. So it's called Slate Key. Okay. I will say it in Welsh, Key Clechy. Yeah. I won't try that again, anyway. Mm -hmm. uh, so we've taken um, units in there, a couple of units in there, which all plate glass windows. And in there, we will be running a course from probably the third week of January. Um, in We're doing creative writing. We're doing creative writing for well-being, actually, which is great. So we want it to be an arts and a well-being mm -hmm. space. We're doing um, paint and prosecco for ladies after work. Oh, love that. Um, so it's more of a don't worry about the quality of the of the daub. Just come for the charade and the, <laughs> and the glass of wine. Um, and then we will have a course of drawing. We'll have a course of um, uh, painting. Um, learning how to use colours. Um, we've got a lady who's going to uh, do a course of mosaics. Uh, one of our core artists, Anne Lewis, does lino printmaking. So, and there's loads of people who want to know how to do that. So we've got two full day courses happening on that. Um, she can do them in Welsh and in English. So that's really popular. Um, so yeah, building from there, really. Any kind of thoughts you have. We've got a ceramics lady coming in. We've got a glass maker who's going to show us how to do stained glass. Um, and a lot of it, we opened for the Christmas markets at the end of November, and we just had people queuing up to sign for adult classes. Okay. And then we had teenagers who really keep not getting what they want out of arts classes at school, not being treated as though they're any good. Yeah. Um, so we want to foster that and encourage that because, you know, Nathan will tell you he flunked his A-levels, but he got a first class degree from John Moores and his fine mm -hmm. arts. And he's, it's taken him till he was in his 40s to actually really get going um and we're doing it together it's really hard by yourself we do it together can't help but feel and compare this to you sound like you're on a mission to sort of create your own little saint ives artistic community um this is what it sounds like and it's so exciting i love that you're as well as having a gallery you've thought of how you can impact or just can contribute creatively to so many different streams of the community you know from young people at high school to I mean I grew up in a really small town I wouldn't have fathomed that I would have been able to have gone to a drawing course or a stained glass course or even 
after university I mean okay when I was at university at Glasgow I could do life drawing once a week in in this weird little pub in the west end of Glasgow which I loved but I just um yeah you know it sounds like you're on a mission to do the work well I've got I've got a really great community of not just the artists who we do a solo show for but all the other artists who contribute to our kind of more eclectic mix of Mm -hmm. art that we sell and um they just got loads of suggestions. So when I got this building, they just said, are you moving the gallery? I went, no, 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 that, the gallery is doing its thing and this needs to do something else. And they've all got loads of ideas and um, uh, they also know that I don't cook. I'm, I'm a, not a domestic, my husband was the domestic god, so it's all a bit, you know, uh, Heath Robinson. In it. <laughs> Somebody came to say the other day and they said, it's true, you only have cheese in your fridge. <laughs> I do. But they're always asking me out over to their place for food and just hanging out and talking about things and what we're going to do next. Well, we can't get framing done really efficiently and effectively and quickly. So we'll set up a framing business next year. So I'm going to recruit an apprentice to do that. Um, We're getting to know more photographers. We've got a great show that's um, doing the tours called Shorelines that will be coming to us at the first time it's been to Wales. So we're attracting things now that bit like your um artichoke was it yeah, or, mm-hmm. did I get yeah. That? We, what we're trying to do is say this is what we do here we 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 look at artists and we ask them if they'd like to work with us we get other artists coming towards us but there's always that other thing so uh you know I want to go to New York because my cousin is the dean of the New York Studio School of Art and I met him before I mean he's my father not my father he's in his 70s but he's he's a brilliant live active artist he's been over there since the early 80s I went over and said I want to open a gallery and he looked at me and went do it do everything and he was like bouncing around so sprightly I was supposed to go last year and of course Covid got in the way but I want to go over next year travel permitting to rekindle the conversations we were having because he said to me what you need is an artist in residence Mm. so I said to Nathan do you fancy being my artist in residence that has just been a stonker because people love seeing an artist he also suggested that I have one of his alumni from New York to come over well you start to think of the the transfer of skills and and you know let's have a Celtic show in Greenwich in New York Mm. it will take us three years to put together but you could you and I could do that we could pull that together and make it happen would love that yeah but that's that for me is the you know that's what entrepreneurialism is all about it happens to be re- working with stuff that we love but nothing is too difficult nothing is without of our out of our reach we can go anywhere we want in the world frankly no absolutely and and that you know if it's in Carnarvon Carnarvon is base camp and Carnarvon is where I walk down the street and people know me and that's lovely and I love that I love being that part of the thing but that's not going to stop me going to all the different places in the world I've been before. So my friend Justine, who lives in Jerusalem, is very keen for me to go over there and see some of the artists that are showing in Tel Aviv, because they're very different again. Well, great, well, why don't we bring some of those over here? And where would be the best place to showcase their work? Um, you know, there, there's just so much art everywhere. It's it's the bond that ties us together, doesn't it? In any nation, it, there's creativity. Well, that's it. And, um, um, it's funny, my I was going to say to to save this conversation being about three and a half hours long. Um, Sorry, no, no, not I'm at all. And um, my my final question that I ask everybody, and it's quite a big one, and you've kind of really touched on it. Really, is 
why is art important and for you I think I think you've just kind of nailed it there though like it's the create creativity is the thing that that runs through everybody I think and and I wrote a blog about it quite a few years ago now before I even started the gallery I think I've always been able to hold on to that eight-year-old's view that I could be an astronaut that that belief that anything is possible mm. I then had it battered out of me like we all do in secondary school mm. it then had a little spark at university and I then joined this bunch of creative lunatics that work in advertising working with copywriters and and art directors and I'm standing on the um the Manchester Art Fair stand and the creative director of one of the agencies I left in 92 walked past and I went Pete and he turned around and he went Sarah McKee pick care what the bloody hell are you doing here I said I've opened an art gallery of course you have came over I had a pop-up of our logo and he said Oh, very Mondrian. Oh, yes, I see the art history is coming through now. <laughs> now, I have not seen that man since the early 90s. And I have obviously talked about what I love all the way through. And I do think it's the visual world, it's art, it's music. It's that whole part of the creative life that we live. Even if we just listen to music and we don't do any of it ourselves, People listen to the radio all day. People are involved in culture in some form everywhere in the world. They'll hum in the shower, you know. Um, there's just that bit that I think runs as a seam through everybody and you can find it. And if you can open it up and if you can actually say to teenagers, you don't need to listen to your teachers. Of course you're creative. You can do whatever you like. You're going to be working till you're 100 anyway, so you might as well do something you like. Um, for me, it's bring everything. Don't live a work-life balance. Live a whole life and live a whole life with lots of colour. I paint my walls yellow and green. My office is orange. You know, I can do that with confidence because bright colours make me zing. And I just like to think that we we can have much more zing in the world if we have art with us mm. um so to be 10 years on widow of the parish painting my hair pink living in north wales and still feeling as though i've got a purpose that my you know i've got purpose i've got the reason to get up in the morning i've got a great tribe you know i may live with a geriatric dash and and a year old mad scruff but do you know what? My my heart is full. Mm. My heart is full because I get to do what I love every day. I mean, you can't really beat that, can you? No, not at all. And no, I mean, envious and just... We should collaborate more. Oh, we should collaborate I mean, more. Yeah, I would love to. I mean, this is... I just feel, even listening to you, like I'm, I feel so inspired to 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 go and do and, and make and, and, and think about things in another way. But Sarah, I've I've absolutely loved talking to you. Me too. And I cannot wait to release this episode and everyone <laughs> to hear this. And um, yeah, we need more people like you in the art world. We do just championing and 
opening it up and making it inclusive and showing people, particularly communities, that it's important and that they what they make is is worthy and yeah, just just to not pigeonhole themselves and there's always a purpose yeah. and just run it life with full colour. I love it. I love it. And where can people connect with you and find you on socials and websites and stuff? I'm on Twitter. Uh, I know how to do Twitter best. Life Full Colour is on everything. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Um, I'm on LinkedIn if people are in business. And uh, our website is very simply lifefullcolour.com. Um, so lots of different ways to connect with us. Amazing. And I'll leave links to all of that in the show notes. Sarah, I have, I have loved talking to you so much. Thank you so much for coming on. Well, you're very welcome. And, and um, notwithstanding the podcast, you know, do keep in touch because I, I do like this Celtic yeah, idea. Absolutely. So maybe there may be a cunning plan in there. Absolutely. I mean, I would, I would love to. I mean, it's... Um... And there you have it, another episode of Joe's Art History Podcast. Once again, I would just like to thank Sarah for coming on and being so open and honest about her experiences both within and out with the art world, her dedicated passion and love for the arts and for what she is creating in Wales. I just think it's so exciting and we need more people and communities that are coming together to create more creative spaces it's a beautiful thing and i'm really excited to see what happens if you'd like to get in touch with anything you've heard in the podcast today please feel free to do so you can email me joesarthistory at gmail.com or you can contact me via instagram which is at joesarthistory and my dms are always open if you would like to get in touch with sarah and learn a little bit more about what life full color is doing please look at the show notes and you will find the link to the website and the Instagram there as well. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast and know of someone that would also benefit from listening, please do feel free to pass it on to them. It would be great to get as many people as possible listening to the show. Also, if you're able to and you're listening on iTunes or via Spotify, you are now able to leave a rating and a review for the podcast, which is great and just helps other people find us as well. So if you can take just one second to do it, it would be a wonderful 50th episode gift to the podcast. Finally, I've been Joe McLaughlin, your host and your resident art historian here on Joe's Art History Podcast. And I look forward to welcoming you next time. Until then, keep learning and remember, art is for all. Bye. <laughs>